Welcome to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Woodsmith, and I'm meeting with Lazarus himself, who's recovered from the dreaded Wuhan flu. We spoke to Hugo Kruger only a few weeks ago, and he took us through what he has learned about the current pandemic and the government response in the episode titled The Corona Leviathan, all while battling with the dreaded disease himself. Now, Mr. Kruger has returned from the grave. Welcome back and congratulations on your recovery. Well, thank you very much. I just want to say it does not take three days to recover from the grave. It takes much shorter than that. So uh, I'm not sure if Lazarus is appropriate yet. Um, But yeah, thanks. I appreciate uh, the support I got. Although, um, just again to all the listeners, I think this virus is totally overblown. Our response is totally out of proportion, and we'll get into that in this in um, the situation. And me getting the virus uh, just confirmed it for me, by the way. Mm. So, um, just to uh, bring in, play a little bit of devil's advocate. Of course, um, yeah, I think you know my actual views, so it's more for the um, for the listeners. That uh, apparently the symptoms of the Wuhan flu, Chinese virus, Kang flu, are um, very different, manifest very differently in different types of people. So, how would you justify us using you, know, you uh, for instance, as a model? to how we should view the dangers of getting the disease? Well, I think people just have to look at the evidence. So yes, uh, first of all, apparently there are some odd symptoms that some people are getting, some are not getting. I think I got all the symptoms, by the way. I lost the sense of taste and smell. I had diarrhea. I had the loss of appetite. I, you know, had breathing problems. I started coughing. The only thing is I didn't end up in hospital with a yeah. ventilator. You, you didn't die. That's one of the symptoms. Uh, yeah, I didn't die. So it's one of the <laughs> symptoms. So yeah, I, I guess there's a list of symptoms and I, I have a suspicion that, um, you know, it's, that a lot of people were treated for flu or for something else. And it was just called COVID because that apparently happened in Switzerland. Uh, there are some doctors did statistics and, you know, they realized everyone with a cough ran to the doctor's in hospital all of a sudden was COVID and doctors like well we can't do anything for COVID we pretty much can't do anything for flu so you all have COVID just go home (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's been the over reporting of COVID has been a huge problem not only uh, not only from you know the medical statistics which should be a lot more accurate but um, the media's reporting on it which I think is self-evident I read a headline the other day I think it was on MSNBC that was saying that the this one girl who suffered from seizures, who um, led the medical cannabis movement, had died from COVID-19. But then I read the article and the article explicitly said she had actually tested negative for COVID-19. She just showed similar symptoms, but there was something else. And she actually so, died from her seizures. So that, that has been the big critique against the Italian numbers. If you look at the Italian numbers, they're out of proportion with even the rest of Europe. You know, That's if we say China didn't lie for us. And I think at this stage, it's like the Chinese might be more honest than the European governments. Um, but uh, whatever the case might be, uh, we have a lot of people dying with COVID-19. But we don't even know if they die from COVID-19. Uh, some of those guys who died had two underlying conditions. I mean, come on, like you know, they were in hospital, they managed to get COVID and now they're dead. And you're like, is it a heart attack? Was it COVID that kills you? Exactly. You can't, you can't know that. So the, the, the statistics are blown up. Um, but yeah, I've got interesting statistics which uh, came out. So um, generally, if you judge how many people die of a virus, the basic thing is you need to know how many people had the virus. 
And up until recently, we had uh, almost no idea because most countries didn't have test testing equipment and the equipment were not as accurate. So they only measured severe cases and sometimes there was a judgment of the doctor in the hospital. So obviously, if you're measuring severe cases, you reckon that 10, 20 percent of the people died from this virus, which is complete nonsense. If 10, 20 percent of the people would die from this virus, we more catastrophic than the Spanish flu that only killed three and a half percent of the people. So obviously something was fishy. Then uh, the statistics are coming out now where they have this fully tested population. So the first one was a Diamond Princess boat where there was something like 1.7% if I remember correctly of the people who died of the full population. But uh, you know, uh, sh uh, ships have got much older populations. So if you scale that proportionately the American population is about 0.6%. And that was the figure that Donald Trump quoted when he said fewer than 1% of the people would die. He was correct, actually. Um, you know, everyone else was saying, but well, look at the amount of deaths. And that's what John Hopkins Medical School and Stanford came, you know, independently, they came to about 0.6% as an upper bound because of the problem that we cannot dissociate those who die and those from it and without it. Now we have more data. There are towns in Italy where they realize that it's 0.002%. Uh, taking into account annual flu 0.2%, so that's like it's the risk from you know, dying from flu is 100% more than dying from this virus in that small town. Uh, Iceland has tested almost everyone in the country. I think it's half the country's been tested, something of the sort. But they've got lots of data, and they come to a similar figure. Then there's towns in Germany that's been tested, and they come to about 0.37. So it's still almost twice the amount of flu. So, you know, what is coming out is that fewer and fewer people have got the virus than we initially thought. Mm. And this, you know, needs a, we need to question the appropriateness of this. Then I had another, went, you know, I think I've done way too much research for my own sanity in this, <laughs> in this virus, but um, I spoke to a medical friend of mine in Kenya, and she said to me, well, surprisingly, in January and December, they had a lot of people who contracted flu. And all of a sudden, Kenya has got no cases of COVID-19. They get a few cases of COVID-19 at the moment. Um, the same claim is being made of California. So we didn't notice when you know the media wasn't focusing on flu or whatever it was in December. But now with the focus on it, everyone is all of a sudden going to die from COVID. So you know, I, I'm very close to calling bullshit on all of this. Mm. I think that um, we established in the previous episode, <clears throat> and uh, sorry for the cough. I think I might either have. Um, cold COVID-19 or just hypochondria um, but I think we've established that um, cor the coronavirus uh, pandemic is more of a panic um, and I think that takes us uh, very neatly into the main topic as South Africans which is the exorbitant and irrational reaction by the government um, I, I have a lot of non-South African friends who, when they see me criticizing the lockdown, they immediately assume I'm criticizing the lockdown of the United States or the UK, and then they try mm. to defend the lockdown. Then I have to then say, um, actually, no, you guys can you know, still buy stuff at the market when the uh, police are actively stopping people from buying seeds, because apparently seeds are not an essential good. Um, Oh, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, that that is the the stupidity of the South African response. I mean, it is disproportionately stupid compared to Europe. Um, I mean, in France, there's no restriction what I can buy and cannot buy. And they haven't imposed price controls. I, the French have amazed me with this thing. I would think that a country dedicated to socialism would impose price controls, but they've not done so. Um, so they figured that one out, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, the Germans apparently didn't even close their factories. I've read an article today during all of this. Um, most of their factories are probably so automated, you don't even have people there anymore. So you can fire the few stuff that's there already. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a concern as well, that the, the lockdown is different in every country that has been implemented in. I mean, Sweden has got barely little, barely any lockdown. They've got limits on people gathering. So is Iceland, by the way. And Iceland's got very few deaths. Um, I think there's some restrictions on schools or something in Iceland. I might be mistaken, but they've got some, you know, some countries have taken some sensible measurements. And I think the sensible measurements is, or measures are just to, um, to control the panic more than anything else. Exactly. Where in South Africa, it's um, plainly stupid at this stage. Um, Becky Kelly trying to ban alcohol. Just by the way, on the alcohol, I'm laughing my butt off. I was sending a, a friend of mine today uh, yeah, the first book that my father ever gave me, which is the Luciano Testament of Lucky Luciano, the bootlegger in New York in the 1920s. Okay. Mm. I think you <laughs> the last episode. Yeah, and I, I, I encourage everyone to read that book if you ever care about how black markets work and develop. Um, and my father is telling me that I, they know of people in Polokwane which are trading in alcohol and the police is involved and everyone is involved and the price for whiskey has tripled, you know, within a quarter of two weeks. <laughs> so you're seeing this all over the place and now we see Becky Kelly today complaining that the police are involved in organized crime. Yeah. But I mean, you've given them every reason in the world to be involved in organized crime. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, if we actually compare the European lockdown with the South African lockdown, if we, if any of those two theaters can actually afford to have, you know, the South African style lockdown, it's actually the Europeans because the Europeans, you know, at least have savings and at least have a, a large enough economic infrastructure that, yes, it would damage them irreparably, but they would still be better off than South Africa is going to be after our lockdown ends. That's correct. And I think South Africa was trying to be European or Chinese without realizing that they actually just ain't. You know, we're far more third world than we want to accept. Maybe yeah. this is a reality check for some people. Um, the Europeans have another benefit, and so does the Americans, where they've got largely service sector-based economies. So a lot of people can work from home. You can't do that in South Africa. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I actually don't know what the thinking was if there was any in South Africa when this lockdown came in because they were just looking at China like okay it works in China we're going to call in the army and the police and we're going to beat China and then without realizing that the country is far more complicated there's far more uh, you know diversity and interests and, and far more poor people in South Africa than China where they leave per capita as well so a lot more people are living from hand to mouth and also the South African state have got very little capability if history is any guide to respond to anything so how are they going to implement this thing? And we're seeing the ridiculousness of this. I mean, I was seeing a video yesterday of, I think it was Gukulechu, the township, where kids are just playing in the street and things are going on. And the police that is there is just so tired of yelling at people. It's just not working. So it's sort of like saying, give it up, you know? Mm. Even then, even if we could implement China's model of quarantine, they started this pandemic. Do we really want to learn from them? Um and even if they are, and also the methods that they have been using allegedly to stop it, I don't believe that they have been. I don't believe any numbers coming out of the PRC. Um, but it's the, the I think uh, if you remember the Milan model of stopping the Black Death that I mentioned yeah. in the last episode, it's the stick, not the carrot approach. And I'd much rather have a carrot. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, look, in China, what... Um 
they also did in China, which was sensible, is they tested everyone. They tested lots of people. And I think it's almost a unanimous opinion among the scientific community at this stage that you cannot deal with this thing without testing. Mm. So I, I went to look into South Africa's testing records, and it's appalling. I think until last week we had something, or this Friday we had like 50,000 tests in the country. Um, or 50, we can do, but only 5,000 of them were done by the government. So you're sitting with um, statistics which are disproportionately skewed towards the people that obey the lockdown rules. You have got no clue what's happening in the rest of the country. So our curve looks very good at the moment. It's sloping now and everything. And for all I know, the you know the peak might already have been through the country before we reacted because fortunately a virus grows exponentially. It doesn't wait for African time. Mm, exactly. um, so yeah, it's a... a it's just the mismanagement and it's actually sad to see what's happening at the moment you know that's that's my response to it because we have basically shot ourselves in the foot you know by using money we don't have to call in the army and this massive things and the same time destroy the productive side of the economy um and now we believe that there's still people believe that we're going to get out of this thing without any consequences or repercussions and you know that to me is just you know it's 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 borderline stupid what is happening at this stage. I've seen that in my um, personal lives and the personal lives of uh, friends who um, on on our side of this debate, re- recognizing that this um, lockdown is worse than the disease itself. Um, there's been a huge split as they start seeing family and friends who just hero worship Ramaphosa and the government, and. Um, I'm simultaneously worried that we're going to come out of this more authoritarian, but at the same time, there's a slight hope that this will open people's eyes to the complete ludicrousness and the complete inadequacy of our government. Um, But regardless, there's going to be a hang of love suffering because we have completely decimated and crippled our economy. And also, we've just completely destroyed social trust. If you look at the amount of snitches going around, I don't trust uh, the the people in my neighborhood. They're, they're a bunch of snitches. They're the same people who would have um, informed to the um, East German government. And mm-hmm. how am I meant to go to um, a residence association meeting and look at that woman who I know seen, uh, tried to send someone to prison because they let their dog, uh, a dog out just to sniff the front porch? Okay. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, that woman or those people. I mean, yeah, they, they so, are. They, so yeah, I, I think... <laughs> I think we have realized how many people like authority in this whole thing. How many people like being told, like school children, what to do and which line you can go into. Um, you know, I see it even in France. I was in the supermarket a few days ago and standing in there. And, you know, I was not two meters away. I was 1.5 meters away. And the policeman was yelling at us. And I'm like, what does it matter? You know, I would have infected her and you because of this thing. And the guys are like, well, we are in a confinement situation. You have to respect the laws. You know what? You're such an idiot. Um, also, just another thing in France, the police are so tired at this stage. Um, or at least the guards outside, because they put guards outside of the stores who are supposed to enforce the rules, but they're not really policemen, they're just you know, guards. So they just let people go in. They say, well, if the police are not here, just go. You know? Yeah, I like that, actually. When they Those come here, okay, we retained, we retained, we, we, expl- we, we are obeying the rules. Um, also today it's it's weekend, so I live uh, close to a park over here, and I go for a walk. Luckily, it's still open. Um, 
but then what the authorities did is there's like a big lawn where people are usually sitting on. Uh, they put red tape around it. And all that's happening now is that people are sitting in the trees <laughs> next to it. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so, you, you know, you're just thinking, what is the sensible, the sensibility behind all of this? There was no thought of going into this whatsoever, not in Europe and not in South Africa. Um, and yeah, the, the, the stats just, by the way, show this to us. Um, the sad part in all of this has been that all countries that went into lockdown, South Africa, Italy, Spain, even the countries that struggled, every single one of them, the curve started reaching an inflection point before going into lockdown. So if you start curling over before going to lockdown, what is the purpose of the lockdown? A lot of people say, well, it's to reduce the even more. And what we're seeing in Italy, by the way, if you plot the exact date when they go into lockdown, you see there's no change of curve for the first week before and afterwards. It only came later. Mm. So, you know, does the lockdown do anything? And, uh, you know, I think the evidence for that is very, very flimsy, to be honest. So someone told me this morning, now I still need to research it, so don't quote me on it, but apparently Ramaphosa said somewhere that the actual worst time for this pandemic is going to be in September of this year, which raises the question, why the hell are we quarantining now then? So either well, we're going to be quarantined for the entire year and we're basically all dead anyways, because we're not going to be able, because the supply chains are all going to stop and we're all going to starve. Um, or we've just literally just wasted, um, how long has it been? I've lost track of time. <laughs> it's almost two weeks, I think, in South Africa right now. Yeah, I mean, um, let's look at that. South Africa, according to Wildermeter, has got 25 deaths. Okay, now it sounds tragic that 25 people have died, but take into account that almost a thousand people die in South Africa every day. I mean, that's I'm using UK numbers to scale it up and down. It might be in that order of magnitude. So if you take a thousand divided by 25, you've got how much? You've got exactly 40. So we closed society for two weeks for one fortieth of a day's deaths. Mm. That's basically what it stands out at this point. I mean, that is a horrible, horrible way of managing almost anything. You know, in Europe, at least they let the curve fly a little bit because they said it must pull into the population. We must control it. And, uh, you know, so if South Africa were to actually not flatten, but deflatten the curve, raise the peak at this stage, it would be much better for the country because what's going to happen, let's assume this lockdown is working. And by the way, we don't even know what our good our statistics are. Um, now we kill the virus. We all praise ourselves. There's going to be lots of hubris after this. And, you know, come two, three weeks after we open the country again, while well, the first customer comes from China and we have the next Chinese virus. What's going to happen? It's going to it's going to take flame again and run through the country. We can't close the country every now and then for this. Exactly. So just by the way, I've, I've read, um, you know, I was writing an article for a report this week and I'm reading the other stuff in the newspaper. I am happy that there's lots and lots more people now questioning the sensibility of this whole thing. Mm. You know, two weeks ago, I thought it was just you and me and I thought and Peter Hitchens in the UK. Now I'm seeing that there's a great more resistance, at least on the economic side, because come Easter, people have now realized for the first time that the economy is going to, you know, killing the economy is going to kill lives and a lot more than the virus. I mean, Zimbabwe is facing half a million people is facing starvation. We might be on our way to create the biggest man-made famine since Pol Pot. Mm. And that's what I'm seeing as well. That's what I'm terrified about. Um, people are, so I've been stressed for the last few days and people say, oh no, it's, it's, you're fine, you're isolating. I'm like, I'm not stressed about that. I'm stressed about uh, that we are on an irreversible path to the next phase of civilization and I am not sure that that next phase is going to be good. 
Yeah, I mean, I hope that the incompetence of the governments are exposed. Luckily, we still have free speech in most of the Western world. You know, yeah. the, the fake news thing, I haven't seen that being enforced in news in journalists on South Africa yet. And I suspect that a few newspapers have got their legal teams ready in case something like that happens. So I, I, I think this is a case for free speech winning over at the end of the day. Um, if what is happening in Europe has happened in South Africa, it means that you need about six weeks of you know, lockdown to the extent of we pretend it works. So I don't see where Ramaphosa gets his September number from. I think it, he's just making it up like everything the government does well i haven't seen any serious article that explains the south african model that's been used mm. and i suspect it's a who model which we now know is demonstrably wrong by an order of magnitude of something like 100 to 150 you know that's the difference between your brother dying and your whole all your ancestors or even your, all your school dying mm. that's the order of magnitude of the mistake that's being made over here and i suspect south africa is still reacting on the original idiotic model from imperial college yeah, it's um, talking about the World Health Organization. Um, what is your opinion on uh, Trump's threats to pull uh, pull the funding? I think it's very sensible. Mm-hmm. I think Trump is correct in this regard. I mean, it, it's a it's a worrying time when I'm agreeing with Donald Trump and, and Jair Bolsonaro. Um, you know, I never thought I would I would see the day that that happens. But um, I, I don't know if you saw the the Taiwan interview for WHO. I mean, yeah, that I was classical. And, you know, that is something I think which you and me, we have stood for for a very long time is we are against an authority that cannot justify itself. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and like one question like that, just pull them down and expose that. You know what? These guys have basically been China's bitch boys while America has been funding them. So I agree with Donald Trump. Pull the funding out. These guys are just... I mean, I would pull it out out of the whole bloody UN, if you ask me. Because the UN is full of guys whose salaries are being paid by America mainly, and then they go on and criticize America. Exactly. It's. um, I was having this discussion the other night, exactly on this, is that the irony that Japan and the US are some of the biggest funders of the world's, the global infrastructure of organizations like the world health organization and the un yet the un and world health organization are dominated by china russia saudi arabia fucking zimbabwe in the human rights council it's are they they <laughs> it's well i see china is not part of the human rights council. they'd say that's saudi arabia a few years ago you know they had this durban conference and unfortunately south africa is like the cesspool for a lot of this bullshit um the, the, i don't know if you saw the durban council a few years ago hmm. where essentially you had um, kofi annan as the leader he was praising castro and then kurt waldheim who was the oh. austrian leader which was actually a dedicated nazi and they were being praised for human rights. And I'm like, this is the United Nations. You yeah. know? This At great organization. <laughs> you know, and while being funded by the evil empire, the United States. You know? The evil you know, empire that's actually still relatively good compared to a lot of the others. Well, it's the evil empire that sends more food aid to Africa than any other country every year, and yet exactly. the African leaders criticize them. I mean, like, I, yeah, I'm critical of a lot of things America did. I, I mean, I, what they did in the Middle East, I think, was blatantly mm. stupid. But I mean, at least have a sense of proportion. You know, you're criticizing European empires and Western empires. Um, I don't see anyone criticizing the Ottoman Empire, which was longer than any other European empire. I criticize them constantly because Constantinople belongs to the Greeks. But that's another, that's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's it's this stupidity that has gotten into, unfortunately, a lot of 
of academia and your people who work in the humanities. It's like they have been taught propaganda, not history. Mm, exactly. Um, I actually will say it, tell people, I love history, and that's why I dropped out of history at university. Because they're yeah, not I, teaching I, I history. Have, I have never taken a single history course at university, and I feel like I know more about history than the historians. Probably, um, actually. You know, just because I've read, you know, objective facts. So at least I try and keep it objective. I mean, it's, you know, you see this this type of thing everywhere that, um, you know, the Western world is now the bane of all evil, you know, despite being the most free and most open and most democratic societies and all these type of things. And, you know, we are now looking at China and Russia as an example, or Iran. Now, if your only friends is Xi Jinping, Putin, and the Alaytola from Iran, then perhaps you need to consider if you're not in the best nations. And unfortunately, South Africa is, you know, chosen the wrong side of history. There's ever such a thing because we are supported by – I mean, the Minister of Health. I don't know if you saw the video the other day. He was um, praising China and Cuba for their assistance to South Africa. Mm, yeah. And um, I thought to myself, what the fuck is this? Despite you know? the fact that Cuban doctors are basically slaves. Um, <laughs> but, oh, but let's, but they have such a good healthcare system, you know, run by slaves. But they had such a good healthcare system. Well, communism now. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the only thing that is good about Cuba might be a healthcare system. And apparently it's not that great either if you can make a comparative yeah. analysis to France or Norway or, you know, Even any to sensible the United country. States. I saw, the US, uh, yeah. I saw a really good, um, it was a response to um, that – what's his name again? He's that really fat socialist um, fil a filmmaker. He did Bowling for Columbine, which is actually uh, – Is it uh, Michael Moore? Yeah, Michael yeah, Moore. Yeah, fat socialist. I love that one. <laughs> so um, actually, Bowling for Columbine is probably his only decent film because he actually admits de uh, um, guns have nothing to do with the inherent violence in America. He says it's actually, if anything, it's more just the media ter turning school shootings into some way to gain fame, which I kind of think he has a little bit of a point. Um, no, no, that has been demonstrated that if the media were not to publish the faces of gun killers, the gun crimes would go down exactly. significantly. Um, but then he had a, so I think it was called The Big Sick or something. No, that's something else. But he did a documentary about the Cuban healthcare system. And then I saw the the rebuttal of it and the rebuttal of someone actually going into cuba and going to the people on the ground yeah they have a nice healthcare system but only if you're a, a member of the inner party and only if you're basically their elites and for the if you're just a normal citizen it's actually better to risk your life to travel across to florida and try to get u.s healthcare and u.s healthcare we know is not the best in the world you know? exactly yeah <laughs> although apparently the icu is, is much better than the rest of europe so um, uh, I've, I've read in some places before that the actual United States healthcare system, the, the actual healthcare technology and their treatments are top-notch. It's just the economics surrounding the healthcare system, which is a problem. And a lot of people say it's the free market. Uh, from what I've seen, it's not. It's that the fact that they, doctors are heavily unionized. There's artificial restraints on how many people can study, uh, can become doctors. Um, and basically, there's just so much red tape on all different sides. Uh, America is simultaneously one of the freest and least free countries on the planet, and it really shows through things like their healthcare system. Well, what has been remarkable from the United States, I mean, I'm not here, by the way, to kiss Donald Trump's butt, you know, I think he's an idiot still. Um, but what has been remarkable there is that they've allowed their doctors early on to experiment, and they've gotten rid of lots of FDA regulations, which we know have been blocking medicine for years. Just, you know, coming back on that thing, um, you know, I, I talked last time about this French doctor who's prescribing chloroquine. Mm. Um, it seems that Marseille has got virtually no one in their high intensive care because they're getting treated early with an off-the-label drug. 
you know. And now the doctors here still don't want to legalize. The government still doesn't want to legalize chloroquine for treatment of COVID-19, despite something like 91% of his patients showing a, a reduced viral load after five days, because it hasn't gone through a placebo test, which takes six months to do, Ugh. you know, under proper clinical trials. Yeah. And his argument has been, and I, I totally agree with him, he said, what matters for a researcher is finding truth. It's finding, eliminating bias. That's why you do a double-blinded test. Um, what matters for a doctor is treating the patient. It's efficiency. Exactly. So if I give you a pill and you're sick from COVID-19, I don't care if it's the placebo that helps you for your immune system or if it's the pill. It might be either one of those three things. At the end of the day, what matters is whether or not you're healed or not. And it seems that chloroquine is showing efficiency of something of the order of 99% or something, something ridiculously high. In his trial in New York, it's showing the same thing. If you start treating people early, the people who have died from chloroquine, like in Sweden, is because they gave them this stuff on a ventilator. Mm. And the amount of uh, drug they need then will probably kill you. Then you have all these side effects you read from in the media. So that's the other thing. We cannot get a treatment legalized in France. But the French government would rather extend the lockdown for another week and a half, which is completely ridiculous, while Marseille demonstrably has gone the other road by ignoring Macron's advice and, you know, having fewer people in ICU. So you're seeing completely inconsistent, non-evidence-based policies happening over here. And unfortunately, to say South Africa is imitating the French-Chinese-Italian uh, model. We always excel at doing the worst possible thing. Yeah, that's one thing you can be consistent of is that you know South Africa will make the wrong decision. You know yeah. what your government does is most wrong. It's probably the no-go alternative for a no-go solution. You know, mm. actually, an interesting thing to return to an earlier topic on um, South Africa's foreign policy and that we keep aligning ourselves with Russia and China and Saudi Arabia and just and Iran, basically the bad guys. And I will very confidently say that I think that. There is a lot of grey in international politics, but I also think there is a form of black and white. And I think the country which runs concentration camps for Muslims, China, the country that's run by effectively the mafia, Russia, and a country which is a brutal theocracy, Iran, um, are the bad guys, at least compared to the reasonable parts of the world. Objectively Um, speaking, we are objectively measured by any sensible outcome of freedom or or cost of living or whatever you want to take take any metric you know exactly. the only thing is maybe cuba with their trumped up medical system can maybe compete yeah you know although yeah, i'm very all. skeptical of cuba's claim you know but i mean if your only thing is good about your country is the doctors i mean uh, what about food yeah you know, like there's still heavy <laughs> salvation there you might have salvation there. i mean it's, it's it's a completely ridiculous argument you know i like to if, I think any sensible person, if given a choice, would like to live in a relatively speaking democratic, free and open society. You know, exactly. You know, we can disagree on the details of that. Just by the way, what's your view on this Taiwan thing? Why aren't we allowed to say Taiwan is a country? Why aren't we allowed to recognize Taiwan as a democracy? And why aren't we allowed to say, up until now, Taiwan has had six deaths from COVID-19, fewer than any other, you know, country in the world, of the first world country in the world. You know. Why, must, why are we not allowed to say that? I'm gonna say personally, I don't call them Taiwan. I call them real China, and the other one, and the mainland China is fake China. Um, but I think it's a similar reason why I'm gonna do, do some old history here. But basically, why Vlad the Impaler is seen as a villain in the West when he's seen as a hero in Romania and around that area, and the same reason why um, the Byzantines are basically <laughs> thrown out is that in the Cold War, the West had to. Base, had uh, interests in with Turkey 
So they basically adopted Turkey's view of history, which was that Vlad the Impaler wasn't a hero who defended his uh, land from brutal barbaric invaders and rapists, but rather a vampire, basically. Um, and... oh, I, I saw the impression that he was a vampire in Dracula. So <laughs> Maybe he was a nice did... vampire. <laughs> Well, I he mean, he impaled people in a psychologically mad way, which I think even would have disgusted Hitler. You know? <laughs> so the, the thing about the impalement, and especially we have to look at things contextually, and the thing is, impalement was, uh, um, wasn't, it wasn't, a, firstly, in wartime, a lot of things go. And the reason he had to do impaling back then is it was for psychological warfare because he was completely outnumbered and it was the only way to basically scare off the enemy so they would actually have a chance. Um, no, I, I don't know if it's the only way, but yeah, whatever. Well, you know, no, it's, it's it history, and it's twelve. Was it twelfth century or thirteenth century? That was fifteenth uh, century. He 15th was. Century. Okay. It was after was just... the fall of Constantinople. Um, yeah. So, so you know, but but that's the thing. You're like, um, okay, you know, whatever. I'm not yet defending the moral validity of uh, Dimitri's decision to impale his, pe- <laughs> you know, his his people. But I not mean, his people, this... the enemies only. He only well, ever the... impaled uh, Turkish soldiers. He never impaled his own people. Yeah, okay. because I, I saw a history documentary which put him um you know it was i think he put like a cup of gold in front of the village and anyone who dared to touch it got killed and... I, that sounds like a myth um like okay. a complete myth um he the problem is is that the turks dominate a hang of a lot of um history because of their importance to european politics they're the gateway to the middle east so the gate so they the if you want to have good oil relations if you want to stop refugees you have to have good relations with the turks during the cold war if you wanted to put nukes next to russia you had to have good relations with the turks um so as a result the Turks were able to dictate a hang of a lot of the culture of the West. The same goes for China today. Taiwan is a small little island, which is comparatively very civilized, extremely advanced, awesome country, but it doesn't have that sheer industrial capacity that mainland China has. So therefore, China controls the debate. So if because if people because people want to do business with China, not only because they want to sell stuff there because they're the most populous country on the planet, but also if they want to have access to cheap manufacturing. Right, and then the consequence for us believing into the Chinese history myths and bullshit, if you will, mm. has been that Taiwan warned the World Health Organization, I believe in December, about this outbreak in China, and the WHO just ignored it because it's of Taiwan. Course. So the WHO here is complacent in all the people that's dying, you know, this is needs to be said. So, I mean, I, I agree with Donald Trump. Will they find a way? Why do we need supranational organizations to solve our problems? Because evidently the UN causes more problems. And honestly, if they're going to go on criticizing, you know, the waste that gives them everything every time, you know, it's like mm. biting the hand that feeds you. Exactly. Honestly, them, you know. I would say that um, there are hypothetical reasons to have international organizations. I just have never seen a an intergovernmental organization like the UN or the World Health Organization, even the IMF, actually do something decent. Because they're yeah. going to be – they basically become a battleground of different um, hegemons and um, – and wannabe hegemons basically just jostling against each other. And for some reason, I think it's probably because the people who work for these organizations come out of academia, and academia basically trains them to be anti-US and anti-capitalist. So it goes back to all uh, Hayek's intellectuals and socialism, is that socialists have captured the acad- academia, and it's academics who go and stock the, star- uh, the staff lists of all these o- uh, international organizations. So we basically just we're dooming ourselves because of 
an entire it's actually kind of like the the market itself you can't trace every single aspect of why the world is shit but it all comes down to basically people uh, collectivists dominating every sphere of our life yeah but you see here's the problem with the whole academic thing and this is something which has been predicted for ages coming first of all there's a big victimhood you know studies coming from the humanities you basically hate everyone and the guys you can hate the most or people like you and me you know yeah. white men which are trying to earn a living and working for society um but you know as you go up higher in the victimhood tale basically i think a transgender whatever, 10 sixth uh, monster has got more rights than anyone else and more say, and you cannot ever criticize them. Mm. So it's a complete nonsense theory that collapses upon itself. But the problem has been that we've been teaching this to kids for ages, right. as if it was true, you know. And, you know, as you say, now they've gone into the rest of society, and what is going to be the consequence of this? Well, we're seeing some of the consequence now. Um, but I attribute this theory, this, this theory um, you know, I come back to Thomas Sowell's book, The Conflict of Visions, because mm. it's such a clear demonstration to me of what is happening right now. You have people who've been taught a model of how the world ought to work but not how it actually works. You know, equal the constrained and unconstrained vision. I think Steven Pinker called it the utopian, the tragic vision. I just say it's a bloody model, you know. People have been told the model of the world, and now, demonstratively, we are seeing the evidence does not correspond with the model, and yet they are still not changing their minds. I mean, there are still people that believe that this COVID-19 virus is going to kill 3.5% of the people. Mm. Now, if that was the we'd be seeing bodies spiraling up throughout the world. We're not seeing that. We are seeing hospitals in Seattle not filled. We are seeing, you know, um, the, the, the Italy having reduced cases. You know, Switzerland is beyond its inflection point. It's actually decelerating at the moment. So we are demonstratively seeing that the claims that were made initially are false. So the evidence has changed, but yet people are still sticking to the vision of the world. And, you know, it's that line of thinking. And uh, I, I think you can solve a lot of this stupidity if you insist that you don't appoint any professor at the university if he hasn't worked in practice. Mm. I don't want anyone to be teaching literature if they haven't been an author or a journalist you know, mm. or something, you know, equivalent, something comparable. Honestly, uh, English literature, and I can say that anyone who studied English literature, they have to unlearn what they learned if they want to become a good author. Um, so as an author and as someone who has done t uh, two semesters in English literature, th thank God I actually, uh, um, it was just an elective, they do not teach you how to be a good writer. They teach the opposite. They teach you how to be pretentious. They teach you how to, uh, to enjoy unlike, uh, the unenjoyable. They, Shakespeare. Um, I actually kind of, I actually like Shakespeare. That's one of the things. But I appreciate Shakespeare for his historical purpose. And right. also because I don't actually mind the, his language. It's more the fact that we will have hour long lectures apologizing for teaching Shakespeare because he was white. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, what that's, I have a problem that, with. Yeah, and then you have to pay them to do that. So, you know, why are you paying that? But unfortunately, I don't think this thing is only in the um, basic sciences or in the humanities anymore. It's gone into the basic sciences, and that worries me. Um, where you have engineers now being trained only to have finite element analysis or deep, you know, mathematical models to solve equations, and apparently this is how buildings react and structures work, who have never in their single life worked in practice or done an experimental test. I mean, uh, I, what scares me here in, in France is that I've worked for a design firm which were designing nuclear structures, and it was all based on models. And I asked the guys, where's the tests? Have you worked on a building site before? And you have guys there 
who were working 40 years in their whole life in a design office. And they've never been on a building site building a structure. I'm sorry, I do not trust any structure that that guy's designed. Mm. You know, so there's, there's no substitute for me for experience and for, for data. You know, and, 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 and this is something that needs to be corrected is where is the evidence? You know, so yeah, the coronavirus was killing 3.5% people in January. No evidence. Evidence comes out. It's 0.6 of the diamond princess. Okay, that's sensible. Three times flu. We can plan for that. Now it's coming out in Germany that it's less than that. Okay, it's 0.3. In Iceland, it's 0.02, something of this sort. You know, um, now our response must be proportionate to the threat. And yet you still have people looking at Worldometer and telling me 20% of the people are going to die from this virus. You know, that type of stupidity needs to be corrected. Mm, exactly. Just to actually um, defend the humanities a bit, and this is not actually defending the humanities, it's attacking everyone else. Um, at least UCT, a South African um, department, uh, uh, South African universities, uh, the humanities does, without doubt, have the most HJWs, critical theorists, because that's critical theory as humanity subject, but the humanities do not actually have mandatory social justice lectures. Engineering does. Science does. Um, I think commerce doesn't, but they might. Um, So it was my friends in the sciences who were actually being taught a dogmatic, you have to follow the social justice stuff, you can't misgender people, oh, um, white people are evil, that type of stuff. In the humanities, at least, we had lecturers who were SJWs, but we act, they did teach us where those ideas came from and also the alternative ideas. People in the sciences were not given those alternatives. So I, uh, in fact, the most dogmatic SJWs I know were from the sciences or lawyers. But lawyers I'm not aren't surprised. Real um, I'm not surprised. I know at, at the University of the Free State, so at the University of Pretoria where I was, we had very few social justice stuff being taught to engineers. And I was thinking that maybe they need to be taught at least an introductory course into politics, but then I might have changed my view later because I don't know if that can ever be objective. Um, But what I know happened at the University of Free State is that they had these common core, I think it was called, curriculum. Um, Started by this professor, Jonathan Janssen, that everyone likes so much. And and yeah, I think he's a a bloody idiot. I I, I, Um, I don't think I'm allowed to talk about why I don't like him. So I won't. <laughs> anyway, so he was basically creating courses to teach um, people to hate, to teach every you know European, South African, whatever it might be, to hate their past. And our past is bad. And we are humans. And we're going to kill each other. And you know, there's nothing you can feel good about or proud about. And you know, all, all this type of bullshit. And as you say, I think a lot of engineers have sucked this up as truth because the problem is when you teach basic sciences you are going to be taught a lot of facts. Things are true in engineering, you know, like a, a concrete is not as strong in tension as in compression. There's no amount of theory and social and critical justice theory that can change that fact. Mm. It's a fact, okay? And yeah, I, I suspect that critical thinking will maybe absence over, absent over there. I don't know. I mean, it's just saying I'm, I'm not against teaching this bullshit because you're going to face it once in life, but you need to know how to search for objective reality. And, uh, yeah, the coronavirus demonstrates to me that there's a lot of people who are, A, just sucking up what authority tells them, and, you know, B, they don't know how to distinguish good science from bad science. They don't know how to distinguish good evidence from bad evidence. And, unfortunately, I've got, um, you know, friends who work with me who are scientists who are working in modeling all day long, it has to be said, who are believing that this virus is as bad. And I said, but the data is different. They're like, well, yes, but the model says that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, maybe the model is wrong. Exactly. Um so uh, we are heading to the almost close to the 45 minutes mark. Are there any uh, important 
closing topics before we conclude? Uh, no, I think um, yeah, just Europe, by the way, is opening up. I mm. think uh, Germany has announced next week they want to look into opening up. Austria is announced by end of Easter. I think next Saturday, end of Easter, something of the sort. Anyway, from next week onward, Italy, Spain, these countries are relaxing restrictions. The bloody French one extended for another week. Macron might want to keep it until May. The French always have know. to be different, don't they? Yeah, this this is this is one one thing that has annoyed me in France is that they think that French science is better than all other science. French, As they, isn't French science a misnomer? <laughs> well, they've got they've had the good scientists throughout the, know, throughout the just... history and good the good mathematicians especially. As an Englishman, but... I'm obligated to dislike the French, despite the of fact course. that the French were basically our French with the Normans. So uh, I will say this in that sense: the, the French science, I. I bring a lot of this bad thinking we were just talking about to the French Revolution where you know once again it was a bunch of rationalists trying to create recreate human nature and uh, we all know how that worked like got mm. Napoleon in a few decades um, and the English tradition historically has been empiricism and I think we should not forget that distinction like mm. do what works as opposed to what sounds good you know this is how I would put this Yeah. Anyway, so I don't have any more comments on this. I think, by the way, I have survived COVID. I am fine. Most of you are going to survive COVID, even if you're old and even if you're overweight. It doesn't matter. Mm. I think that that's just you have extra fat to survive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they, we can write a critical theory on fat and obesity. Yeah. In fact, I forgot. Uh, this is probably my closing statement. I was going to mention it earlier, but I've just remembered it. Is um, it goes back to the media's over uh, overblowing panic about this is how people in the media are calling this a plague and no. it's firstly it's not a plague a plague is a certain type of disease it's not a plague um the plagues are a lot scarier they the bubonic plague um had a close to 100 percent fatality rate this is very different but it also just shows how people are using this word plague not just ignorantly but also <sighs> in order to inspire panic it's almost as if they want it to be a plague it's almost as if they want this to be the apocalypse yeah they they, they remember there are people in this world whose business model is essentially to tell you you're a victim or the world's going to end and exactly. I, I think that is what's happening over there they want the world to end because there's a lot of people who just don't like modern civilization they feel like you know they're angry in themselves and they've got a victimhood mentality and now they think that the whole world must uh, die to give them psychotherapy I honestly, how can you look at a bookshelf in a in a mall? Well, okay, good a good bookshelf in a mall. I, there's some bookshelves which are quite quite bad. Okay, but look at the books on display from the whole of human history. Look at Netflix. Look at YouTube. And how can you be upset with the amount of human creativity and human contribution that we have at our fingertips and actually and want it all to end? Well, we see, this has been my attitude as well, that there's a lot of ingratitude in this world. Mm. I mean, I, I compare this to, you know, I've, I've now read, I want to read a book on the um, First World War, in order to try and sharpen up mm. my history about that as well. But, I mean, just imagine that you're a soldier in the First World War. Your friends are either dying from shells or they're dying from the um, from this actual Spanish flu. Okay. And you are seeing, you know, if some of your friends are being eaten by rats next to you, and pretty much whether you're going to die is, you know, every minute there's a grace from God mm. um, that you survive. You know, how can anyone seriously look at that situation of those soldiers and the people coming back and probably dying of the flu as they came back 
how can anyone seriously say that today is much worse than any point exactly. in history? It I mean, is. I can show you lots of other points. The Franco-Prussian War, for example, the Thirty Years' War. You know, I, I think if a person in the Second World War would look back and would say, read history, would say, you know what, the Thirty Years' War was much worse than the Second World War. You know, and there's, there's some comparative data to suggest that more percent, higher percentage of Germans died during that time. It was also any, a, a form of civil war to a degree because Germans killing Germans, which and that was it was Protestants worse. against and Protestants against Catholics. Yeah. You know, wars of religion. We haven't seen that. I mean, somebody in the Middle East, I can understand that his life might not be that great, um, or you know, a kid starving of starvation in Africa. But I think anyone who lives in a middle class in a modern society, and it's usually them complaining. Exactly. You know, you should just you know keep quiet and know his history. Thank you for listening to the Rational Stand podcast. If you would like to read our articles on COVID-19 and a range of other socio-economic and political topics, please visit us at rationalstandard.com. Thank you, Hugo Kruger, for joining us, and we hope that you'll all tune in next time.